Hello and welcome to Hollywood, the podcast that explores the lives of history's greatest storytellers. I'm your host, Key Whiskey, and this is the fourth chapter in our ongoing series called Writers Under the Influence, featuring authors whose lives and careers are in the popular imagination and tangled with their relationships to substances. See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine. Not only are barbiturates dangerous to his nervous system, but they destroy the inner resources. This is your brain on drugs. But the grim specters of heroin, marijuana, and cocaine. Oh, devil weezer. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. hell. Today we're going backwards in time, further than we ever have before on this podcast to the 18th century, also known as the Romantic Era. Of course, the only drug we could possibly speak about in relation to this period is opium. When people think of opium, they think of the Victorians. But it was sometime around 4000 BC when humans first discovered that after the pretty petals of the bright poppy flower fall away, an egg-shaped seed pod is exposed which holds an opaque milky sap. This is opium in its crudest form. The sap is extracted by cutting the pod vertically with a special curved knife. As it oozes out, the sap turns darker and thicker, forming a brown-black gum with a strong odor. It is then collected and wrapped in plastic or rolled into balls for sale. The buyer has the option to smoke, inject, drink, or eat the drug though the latter is the least popular means of consumption because raw opium is said to have an awfully bitter taste. In 1793, the British East India Company established a monopoly on the opium trade when they took control of certain opium poppy growing districts of India and began illegally smuggling the drug into China. They exchanged it for oriental luxury goods like porcelain, silk, and tea, which were in high demand back in the West. They fueled opium consumption by increasing supply and lowering prices, thereby taking an illegal drug used mostly by China's elite and making it available to the middle classes. But despite their attempts to crack down, one third of the country was already addicted by the year 1800. The misery of China was a financial jackpot for Britain. But opium's curse wouldn't be restricted to China. In the 19th century, it yielded another narcotic to a German chemist looking for a way to make opium stronger. The result was, is, the most powerful painkiller in the world, and the most addictive, morphine. Like opium, it sedates, dulls pain, and induces euphoria. But it is 10 times the strength, even when administered in small doses. At a time when the landscape of scientific knowledge was incomplete and unsophisticated, when a surgeon's tools were the same as a carpenter's tools, when an illness was either medicated or amputated, morphine was a godsend. Even as reports of morphine cravings rose, Pain is a powerful motivator, and physicians saw dependence as a small price to pay to take their patients' discomforts away. They didn't realize that with each administration, they were helping set the stage for the world's first drug epidemic. One of the most widely used legal opiate preparations was laudanum, a compound containing a mixture of opium and alcohol thought to cure all kinds of everyday ailments from headaches and menstrual cramps to coughs and insomnia. Cheaper than beer and sold over the counter, it was as ubiquitous and accessible as aspirin is today. In fact, pregnant women would turn to laudanum to soothe their morning sickness, and desperate mothers would use it to quieten their crying babies. Yes, they gave opium to babies. When opium enters the human body, It activates powerful reward centers in the brain, 
triggering the release of endorphins, which muffle the perception of pain and boost feelings of pleasure. Repeated use of opiates changes the way the brain works. It sends signals to the body to stop producing endorphins, the body's natural painkillers, because opium is doing all the work already. The nerve cells that produce the endorphins degenerate. This is where withdrawal for an addict seems impossible. They physically can't function without the drug. What started out as a recreational pleasure trip is now something an addict can't live without. I had plenty of authors to choose from when writing today's episode. Indeed, it seems all the greatest artists of the 18th and 19th centuries were marinated in opium. Charles Dickens, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Elizabeth Gaskell, and George Eliot were all dope fiends to one extent or another. But Samuel Taylor Coleridge and Thomas de Quincey, my chosen authors, are interesting for a number of reasons. For a start, they were contemporaries, acquaintances if not quite friends, and their work helped kickstart the Romantic Age in English literature. Their lives spanned across the 18th and 19th centuries, the same span of time in which the opium epidemic went from being a spark to an all-out wildfire. Both authors naively welcomed opium into their lives in the form of laudanum for the purposes of relieving pain, as many folk of their time did, but quickly grew addicted to its pleasurable sensations and divine highs. Samuel and Thomas's lives crumbled as the drug tightened its grip and they slipped deeper into the nightmare thrall of opium addiction. Both authors used writing to explore how they suffered from their addiction, though one was far more explicit than the other. And while drug literature might be an over-familiar genre now in 2020, Thomas and Samuel pretty much invented it. Books like Trainspotting, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Basketball Diaries, and Requiem for a Dream owe a great creative debt to the writings of Thomas de Quincey and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. For it was these men who paved the way for all the drug lit that came after. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was born on October 21st, 1772, in a town called Ottery, located in Devonshire, a historic county that forms part of the Cornish Peninsula of Great Britain. His father, John, was a vicar of a parish church and the headmaster of a grammar school. There isn't much information on his mother, Anne, but given Samuel was the youngest of ten siblings and three half-siblings, it's likely Anne didn't have time to establish much of a life outside her child-rearing duties. As the baby of the family, Samuel admits he was coddled and tended to by his parents and his older siblings. There was always someone around to pay him attention, to care for him, but growing up in a large family didn't mean Samuel was sociable. He was a precocious and imaginative child who preferred to be left alone to read rather than join in on games with other children. He despised the boys his own age and felt the boys despised him back because he couldn't play sports and he always had his head stuck in a book. He read books far beyond his years and became especially obsessed with tales of mystery, such as Arabian Nights. Young Samuel spent a great deal of time with his father. He was a student at his father's grammar school and on weekends would accompany him on his pastoral duties around the parish. His father gave him the affection he craved but did not receive from his mother Anne, who was more practical than she was affectionate. She was also the disciplinarian. When Samuel was about six, he got into a fight with his older brother Frank and got so enraged that he pulled a knife from a kitchen drawer and threatened to stab Frank. Anne walked in and interrupted the altercation. Samuel realized he was in big trouble. He dropped the knife and fled. He spent the whole night on the bank of the Otter River, exposed to the frost and the rain, but too scared to go home because he thought he'd receive a whipping. But his mother was no longer mad. She was worried. The whole town was mobilized in search for the boy and it wasn't until dawn that he was found, soaking wet and stiff, and paralysed from the cold. In 1781, shortly before Sam's ninth birthday, tragedy struck. Reverend John Coleridge died suddenly, leaving Sam without a father and a teacher. Before he'd even had a chance to deal with the grief, 
Sam was packed off to London to complete his education at Christ's Hospital School, one of the oldest boarding schools in the country, which offered gifted orphans and poor children a free education. But the school's teachers were notoriously brutal. They gave out floggings as frequently as they gave out homework. The infamous headmaster once knocked out a student's front teeth when he threw a heavy book at the student's head from across the room. Samuel was miserable and lonely. He was a country boy transplanted into an unfamiliar city, far from family and other connections. His relationship to his mother grew strained when he realised she had no intentions of keeping in touch with him. After the death of her husband, Anne Coleridge moved into the house of her oldest son George, who took over his late father's position as vicar and school headmaster. When Samuel's school went on break, Anne sent him to stay with relatives in London instead of allowing him to return home to see his immediate family. Samuel began to experience the first signs of the depression that would plague him throughout the rest of his life. His misery and homesickness worsened when a few short years after his father died, Samuel lost three brothers and his beloved only sister. Two of his brothers are thought to have died by suicide, indicating that perhaps Sam wasn't the only Coleridge to suffer from depression. Sam had no better luck making friends at school in London than he did back in his hometown. He was still shy and bookish, and when he wasn't reading, he enjoyed writing poetry. But living in close quarters with other boys forced him to be sociable. He grew close to another bookish schoolmate, a boy with a stutter named Charles Lamb, and the two would remain friends for life. Sam and Charles were clever pupils who hoped to become clergymen, but as they expanded their reading and consumed more sceptical books from authors like Voltaire, Sam began to question his relationship to God. The headmaster found out and summoned his student to his office to ask whether he was still planning to become a holy man. Sam, by then about 13 years old, said no, and admitted to being a, quote, infidel. The headmaster proceeded to beat the infidelity out of him. It was the severest flogging Sam ever received. Another of Sam's friends at Christ's school was a boy named Tom Evans. At some point in 1788, 16-year-old Sam visited Tom's home in London and met and fell in love with his older sister, Mary. He kept his feelings secret, but the love seemed to drive him mad, made him do stupid things, like swim across the New River in London while fully clothed, then walking around all day wearing the same sopping wet clothing. He contracted rheumatic fever and jaundice as a result, and spent a great many months of his last year of school in a sick ward recovering. In 1791, Sam entered Jesus's college in Cambridge on a scholarship. He dutifully threw himself into study, partly because he wanted to keep up his intellectual reputation and partly to distract himself from thoughts of Mary Evans. At the end of his first year, he won the university's brown gold medal for a progressive Greek poem that rallied against the slave trade and called for abolition. But soon he was distracted from his studies too. His belief in his own free will was challenged as he was seduced into the college social scene. From his second year of college, he fell into a kind of adolescent crisis. Evening after evening, he went out to wild parties across Cambridge City, downing brandy and spirits until he was drunk to the gills and feeling on top of the world, only to plunge into a guilt-ridden hangover the next morning while thinking of his wasted talents, not to mention wasted money. Sam received a small allowance from the scholarship and from his older brother George, but it wasn't enough to fund his extravagant lifestyle. He began to rack up debts and not only through his regular nights on the town. The first big bill came when he hired an upholsterer to redecorate his college room and failed to set a budget. Then came the bills from the bars and the brothels. Sam's first sexual experience of women was with prostitutes an expensive habit he soon quit and regretted when, at one point, he feared he had picked up a venereal disease. His final moral and monetary drain was opium. 
It is believed Sam first tried opium in his third year of college during a particularly painful bout of rheumatism and neuralgia. He dragged his aching limbs down to the druggist and purchased an over-the-counter bottle of laudanum. A number of drops later, his pain was soothed and euphoria had set in. Sam was amazed. When the drug wore off and the pain returned, he did not hesitate to down another dose. He soon found the laudanum both alleviated his physical ailments and lifted his moods also. But no amount of laudanum was going to make Sam's debts go away. His older brother George was growing increasingly frustrated at having to cover his younger siblings' costs all the time, with no sign of future reimbursement. Sam felt trapped within a prison of his own making. He fled Cambridge for London, where he holed up at an inn, drinking and writing poetry, and trying to figure out what to do with his life. He purchased a ticket in the Irish lottery and didn't win. He ran out of money to pay for his accommodation and wound up sleeping rough for a few nights on the steps of a house in a quiet laneway. He toyed with the idea of suicide, but thankfully chose to fight on. At some point, while wandering the streets of London and contemplating his future, Sam noticed a recruiting poster for the Light Dragoons, a class of troops trained to ride into battle on horseback and make quick dismounts to fight on foot. He considered it a sign and went to enlist. The recruiting sergeant tried to discourage him from enlisting. He could see Sam wasn't Dragoon material, but Sam had nothing to lose and nowhere to go. He enlisted into the King's Regiment of Light Dragoons under a fake name, Silas Tomkin Combabatch, which matched his real STC initials, and, along with the other new recruits, was marched off to be drilled with his regiment at a town outside of London. Sam's disappearance from Cambridge became the topic of much university gossip over the following months. His concerned friends carried out an investigation, discovered his whereabouts, and alerted Sam's equally concerned brothers, who swiftly went about securing Sam's discharge from the Dragoons by paying a hefty bribe. The regiment were no doubt happy to see him go. Sam couldn't ride a horse to save his life. Soon, he was back at Cambridge, being scolded by the master of the university and facing down some serious disciplinary penalties. Nevertheless, Sam was relieved to be back in a familiar environment and his debts were settled by his generous brothers. He passed his annual examinations and his scholarship was renewed. After proving his recommitment to study, Sam took the summer break of 1794 to treat himself to a walking tour across England and up towards Wales. While passing through Oxford, he met a fellow poet and his future brother-in-law, Robert Southey, who joined him on the tour. 20-year-old Southie and 22-year-old Sam bonded over their shared political views. Across the English Channel in France, King Louis and Marie Antoinette had not long been executed. The bloody reign of terror had ended and the French Revolution was rushing towards its radical climax. The French spirit of liberty and equality appealed to Southie and Sam and they began to envision their own version of utopia. They began laying plans for what they called a pantisocracy, a self-sustaining agricultural colony wherein all residents were equal no matter their race, gender, creed, political or social standing, and the fruits of labour were shared. It was akin to the 1960s hippie commune. The strange name pantisocracy came from the Greek word pan meaning all, as in all-inclusive, and isocracy, meaning equality of power. They were so full of youthful enthusiasm about their pantisocracy, they shared their plans with other intellectuals they met along their tour, inspiring some and offending many with their radical ideas. At some point in his travels, Sam spotted his old love, Mary Evans, on a street. He ducked into a nearby inn to hide, and though they didn't interact, he was so shaken by just the sight of her it made him physically ill. His passions were reignited, but useless. Mary was engaged to another man. He admitted to his new friend Southie he was desperate to find love. 
To be loved is all I need, and whom I love, I love indeed. In the meantime, the Pantasocracy project was a good distraction. Back in Cambridge and his walking tour over, Sam's usual poems of passion had turned political, and he'd lost all interest in completing his degree and pursuing a career in the church. In January 1795, Sam quit college for good, leaving behind his debts and his comfortable social circles to join his new friend Southie in Bristol. They were going to turn their utopian fantasies of an exotic pastoral paradise into a reality. Or at least they thought so. Like the members of a newly formed band, the two poets failed to see eye to eye over certain principles. Southie outright disagreed with Sam's belief that couples should not be confined by marriage or monogamy, and Sam scoffed at Southie when he proposed they bring servants with them to the new community. Then, they disagreed over the location. Sam wanted to set up their community on the banks of the Susquehanna River in Pennsylvania, America, where land was cheap and fertile, and Southie preferred a less ambitious move to neighbouring Wales. The friendship turned awkward. Sam fell into another awkward relationship around this time. Southie set him up with a woman named Sarah Fricker, the sister of Southie's fiancée Edith. The Fricker sisters were elegant, educated, and emancipated city girls who supported themselves by working as seamstresses. Sarah was the oldest sister at 24. She was beautiful, witty, and headstrong, and even though Sam was on the rebound from Mary Evans, who continued to string him along with sporadic love letters, he found himself attracted to Sarah. Southie liked their little group of four. The disagreements over the pantasocracy had driven a wedge between himself and Sam, but he felt hopeful the Fricker sisters would bring them together again. So he encouraged the flirtation between his friend and soon-to-be sister-in-law. That said, Sarah didn't need much encouragement. She was hooked from the get-go. 22-year-old Sam was James McAvoy-level handsome, with a detectable streak of genius and a gift for conversation. By 1795, the couple were married, as were Edith and Southie, and the pantasocracy pipe dream faded into the past. The Coleridges and Southies moved to a cottage in a small village in Somerset. Here, surrounded by lush meadows, rolling hills, and outstanding natural beauty, Sarah and Sam worked hard to establish some sort of domestic bliss, though their marriage was already fraying at the seams. Sarah devoted herself to household and motherly duties, raising their newborn son Hartley, while Sam wrote poetry and plays, complained of various illnesses, consumed ever-increasing quantities of laudanum, and spent a great deal of time in bed reading. They were financially supported by Sam's new friend and local philanthropist, Tom Poole, who recognised greatness in Sam and encouraged his writing. It was through Tom that Sam was introduced to his intellectual soulmate, a fellow poet named William Wordsworth, who shared Sam's ambitions and ideas and matched Sam's talents with a genius of his own. They were immediately enamoured with each other, and so began a golden period of collaboration and creative rivalry between two poetic giants. Sam was not quite as prolific as William in the amount of poetry he produced, but the poems he did produce were incredibly powerful, and in some respects were far more profound than William's poetry. In 1797, 25-year-old Sam wrote some of his most famous pieces. The first was Christabel, a gothic ballad about a virtuous young woman who comes upon a distressed lady in the woods one night, who calls herself Geraldine, and claims to have been kidnapped. Christabel takes Geraldine home to her father's castle, only to discover she is an evil, supernatural creature. The other piece, and perhaps Sam's most famous, was Kubla Khan, a poem he scribbled out quickly after awaking from an opium-induced dream about a legendary palace named Xanadu built by a Mongolian warrior-turned-ruler, Kubla Khan. Christabel and Kubla Khan were never completed. Die-hard fans believe Sam's demand for perfection and the intimidation he felt by his own genius eroded his confidence and caused him to abandon his art before finishing. Sam's detractors 
believed that it is simply a case of an opium buzz wearing off before he could finish, and perhaps a dose of laziness. In any case, Sam's bad habit of leaving work unfinished remained with him throughout his life. But William was a great influence on Sam, a steady anchor to the younger man's feckless and manic temperament. And when they decided to collaborate on a collection of poems, what happened next was the stuff of literary legends. As they wandered the Quantock Hills by day and engaged in philosophical conversations by the fire at night, Sam and William conceived The Lyrical Ballads, a game-changing book that kicked off the Romantic movement. It was the 18th century's literary equivalent of the Beatles dropping their Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Sam's single contribution to the lyrical ballads was the opening ballad, a long narrative titled The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It is an experimental gothic poem about a weary mariner recounting a disastrous seafaring journey he once took across the Antarctic, during which he shoots and kills an albatross for no apparent reason. The bird's death brings a curse upon the vessel and causes the death of all his fellow sailors. A pair of brothers, heirs to the famous Wedgwood pottery firm, were so impressed with Sam's talent, they offered him an annual allowance of 150 pounds, roughly the equivalent today of 12,000 pounds. The idea was to free him of financial pressures and allow him to devote himself to further creative endeavors talk about friends in high places. After the publication of Lyrical Ballads, Sam treated himself with a trip to Germany alongside William. Germany at that time, and for most of the 19th century, was a hotbed for radical politics, progressive philosophies, and avant-garde thought. It was the edge of modernity. He learned fluent German, made new friends, and widened his knowledge and world experience. All the while, Sarah was back home in England, cooped up in a damp, mouse-infested cottage, raising Hartley and awaiting letters from a husband who didn't love her anywhere near as much as she loved him. Originally, the plan was for Sarah to join Sam on the German tour, but the idea was shelved after she gave birth to their second son, Berkeley. Berkeley wasn't long for this world. He died at only nine months old. Sarah sent word of the death of their son, but Sam didn't hurry home. He remained abroad several more months, leaving Sarah to cope with the loss on her own. When Sam finally returned to England, he didn't stay long. He found the cottage cramped and unappealing, and especially miserable in the wake of Berkeley's death. Once again, Sam packed his bags and took off, this time to the Lake District, trading in time with his own family to visit the Wordsworth family. It was here in the Lake District that 27-year-old Sam met Sarah Hutchinson, William's sister-in-law. Sarah was 24, cheerful and curvaceous. Sam fell in deep love, a love doomed from the beginning. For a start, Sam was already married to a different Sarah. Moreover, Hutchinson didn't seem to desire Sam physically, or love him, at least not with the intensity that he desired and loved her. A man's desire is for the woman, but the woman's desire is rarely other than for the desire of the man. He wrote her into his poetry, referring to her by the private nickname Azra, A-S-R-A, which was a flimsy anagram of her name Sarah, S-A-R-A. After suffering through several weeks of blissful torture with his unrequited crush, Sam finally returned to his actual family, and he and Sarah had two more children, son Derwent and daughter Sarah. That's right, S-A-R-A. But it was already too late. His marriage was in tatters. Sarah was no idiot, and she had had enough. The marriage was over. The stress of the separation with Sarah and his doomed love for Hutchinson left Sam in bad health and bad spirits. By age 32, he felt his literary career was behind him and that he had lost his talents. He was a complete slave to opium and a heavy drinker, and the combination of drugs and alcohol brought Sam to the brink of sanity and led to a falling out with William, 
who was fed up with Sam's procrastination, his addiction, and his disregard of his family obligations. In the early 1800s, while in his 30s, Sam kept up a nomadic existence, travelling across Europe and then landing work in Malta as a secretary to the governor. In 1810, Sam returned to England and settled in London, and over the next decade, he continued to remain active in the literary community as a critic, lecturer, and playwright. But his career was rather turbulent, at times skyrocketing to great highs, then plummeting into great lows. When the Royal Institute commissioned Sam to give a series of lectures in London, his use of opium debilitated him so often he had to cancel scheduled appearances. In 1816, 44-year-old Sam moved into his final resting place. He voluntarily placed himself in the care of Dr. James Gilman, who was to treat him for opium addiction. But Dr. Gilman's plan wasn't to cure Sam's addiction so much as to control it, by restricting his access to Loudner. What was only supposed to be a one-month stay at Dr. Gilman's house in Highgate turned into 18 years. The remainder of his life was a splendid wreck. His relationships with his children, particularly his oldest son Hartley, were distant and ambivalent. His nervous system was shattered and he suffered extreme mood swings, going from manic and euphoric one day to hopeless and depressed the next. Modern psychologists and scholars speculate that Sam actually suffered from bipolar disorder type 2. In the end, opium won. Sam died gently in July 1834 from heart failure, likely induced by the drug. He was only 61 years old. The following excerpt comes from part four of The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. After the sailor cruelly shoots down the albatross with his crossbow, a curse takes hold of the ship, killing off all of the crew and leaving the sailor as the sole survivor. Alone, alone, all, all alone, alone on a wide, wide sea, and never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. The many men so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a thousand thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. I looked upon the rotting sea, and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the rotting deck, and there the dead men lay. Noticeably missing from Sam's story is my next author, Thomas De Quincey, whose literary career and life almost mirrors Samuel Taylor Coleridge's to the point that the two writers became virtually interchangeable. But while Sam is widely considered the first to allude to opium in his writing, Thomas De Quincey was the first to write openly about it. And so it is De Quincey who is better remembered as the man who kick-started the tradition of drug literature. Thomas De Quincey was born in Manchester in 1785, 13 years behind Sam Coleridge. His mother was Elizabeth Penson Quincy, and his father was Thomas Quincy Sr., a successful linen merchant. Elizabeth occupied a higher social position than Thomas Sr., and how and where they met is unknown, but it likely happened in London where Elizabeth lived with her family and where Thomas Sr. often travelled to for work. They married and settled in a flat above Thomas's shop in Manchester and bore eight children with Tom Jr. being the fourth. Sometime after Tom's birth, the Quincys moved to a pretty country house just outside the city. Tom was a tremendously intelligent, sensitive child who spent a lot of time in the garden. He loved nature and creatures of all kinds. Whenever the housemaids tried to kill spiders that had snuck into the house, Tom would scoop them up in his hands and transfer them back outside. When Tom was six, the Quincys built a larger home called Green Hayes Hall, a provincial house that looked to be straight out of a storybook, with climbing vines, French windows, a long driveway, and a portico. Out back was a gardener's house, coach house, greenhouse, and stables. It cost Thomas Senior £6,000, almost £900,000 in today's money. Though the hall no longer exists, the area in Manchester where it once stood is still, to this day, named Greenhaze. 
Thomas Quincy Sr. spent a lot of time traveling for work, but his cultural, artistic, and literary interests still rubbed off on young Tom, who could be found reading in his father's library when he wasn't in the garden. Tom's mother, on the other hand, was a devout, generous woman, but her tranquility and severity as a parent made her seem cold to young Tom. If her husband wasn't traveling for work, he was often ill in bed with early signs of tuberculosis. Elizabeth was left to care for her eight children alone, so there wasn't much time for her to delight in the pleasures of motherhood. She ran the household with the detachment and regimentation of a ship's captain. Each morning, Tom and his siblings were expected to march to her dressing room and be inspected for proper posture, dress, cleanliness and health before being dismissed with a quick kiss on the forehead. She could also be quite snobbish and insistent of her social standing. For example, refusing to speak to the staff working in her house, except through the channel of a trusted housemaid. To compensate for the affection he didn't receive from his mother, young Tom retreated into the feminine world of the nursery and bonded with his two sisters, the younger Jane and the older Elizabeth. But his time with them was brief. Jane died when he was four, and though the cause of death is unidentified, rumours spread throughout the house and local community that a servant had lost her temper around the sick child, perhaps to the point of striking her and delivering a deadly blow. Then, when Tom was six, Elizabeth died from meningitis. He missed her so much that the day after her death, he snuck up into her bedroom where her corpse was laid out on the bed. Tom stood over her, shocked and entranced by her marbled face and stiffened hands. He might have stood there forever if he hadn't heard movement coming from downstairs. Terrified of being caught, Tom ran from the bedroom. For the rest of his life, he remembered the encounter with his dead sister as a harrowing event. The misery didn't end there. When Tom was eight, his father succumbed to tuberculosis but not before organising his affairs and ensuring his family would be financially stable after he was gone. Elizabeth had lost a husband, but she hadn't lost her social ambitions. She changed their surname, adding the D in De Quincey because she felt it sounded more regal, and moved her grieving family to Bath, the beautiful spa town Jane Austen would later make famous. Tom started at a private school, where he demonstrated an early and impressive gift of language, including Latin and Greek. By age 15, he could speak, read, and write ancient Greek so fluently that one of his teachers at Bath liked to joke that Tom could communicate to a group of ancient Athenians better than an English teacher could communicate to a group of Englishmen. Around this time, Tom got his eager hands on the manuscript of lyrical ballads written by William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge and read it several times over. He called it the, quote, greatest event in the unfolding of my own mind. He became instantly obsessed with the two romantic poets, particularly William, and thought them to be geniuses of the highest order. Tom was the original fanboy. When Tom was 16, the De Quincey's returned to Manchester and Tom was enrolled as a boarder at Manchester Grammar School with the aim of moving on to Oxford University following graduation. But from the moment he stepped on the grounds, he hated it. He wrote to his mother, begging her permission to leave Manchester Grammar, but Elizabeth refused to budge. They fought, sending argumentative letters back and forth to each other. Tom was deeply unhappy with the restrictive, taxing school schedule which involved long hours of study that left little time for rest, exercise and fresh air. Though he got on well with his fellow classmates, he felt intellectually superior to his teachers. And so, in July 1802, after taking out a loan, packing up a trunk of his belongings and tucking a copy of the lyrical ballads in his back pocket, Tom escaped Manchester Grammar in the dead of night. The plan was to head north to the Lake District to finally meet his idol, William Wordsworth. But at some point on the road, he changed his mind and bent his way southwest to wander through Wales en route to London. Although Tom loved fresh air and wide open spaces, he was a wannabe poet, and London was, as it is now, the most literary city in the world. 
He managed his limited amount of money well while on the road, and stretched it out as much as possible by staying in cheap lodgings and sleeping out under a tree when the weather was nice. He met many different people from all walks of life and developed the conversational skills for which he would later become famous. When Tom finally arrived in London, he looked into borrowing money against his father's inheritance he was due to receive at age 21, but he was totally ignorant to the complexities involved in such a transaction, not to mention a few years too shy of 21. Money never came in, and after a number of weeks, Tom was forced out of his barely decent lodgings in Soho in the West End of London. He might have used his Greek skills to find work as an interpreter or translator, but it seems to have never occurred to him. And in any case, to get a job, Tom would need a recommendation, and he knew no one who would act as a reference. London in 1802 was a brutal city, dirty and unsafe and disease-ridden, even for citizens with a roof over their head. Tom was not so lucky. Here he was, at Christmas time, the middle of winter, penniless, homeless and alone. He roamed the city during the day and took shelter in abandoned spaces at night. After several weeks of sleeping rough, Tom reached out to the moneylender from which he'd failed to secure a loan when he first arrived in London. The moneylender referred him to an abandoned, dilapidated London townhouse near Soho Square, already sheltering other desperate vagrants like himself. Here he met a skinny, young sex worker named Anne, commonly referred to by locals as, quote, Anne of Oxford Street. Tom and Anne became good friends. She offered him company and he offered her protection. Each night they huddled together on a bed made from a piece of old rug using each other's small bodies for warmth. Tom and Anne's relationship was rather like that of siblings than lovers. They were too hungry and tired for romance. They were partners in poverty. One night, while they were wandering the streets together, Tom fell gravely ill and collapsed on a doorstep. Anne ran to a nearby shop and brought back a bottle of port wine, which provided the sick teenager the sustenance he desperately needed. Anne had dipped into her own meagre savings to purchase the wine. She could hardly afford to feed herself, and yet she did not hesitate to put Tom's well-being before her own. The generous and honourable act stayed with Tom for the rest of his life, even if Anne didn't. Sometime after the port wine incident, Tom left London briefly to visit a family friend. Before he left, he and Anne arranged to meet up again on the corner of Titchfield Street after he returned. Night after night, at the previously agreed-upon time, Tom waited in the same spot. But Anne never showed. He kicked himself for failing to learn her surname. He only knew her as Anne. He visited her last known lodgings, only to learn she'd moved elsewhere. Tom tried to remain hopeful, though it seemed more and more likely Anne had died. Why else didn't she appear? For years to come, Tom looked into the face of every woman who passed him by, in search of his long-lost friend. In March 1803, the 18-year-old reconciled with his mother and returned to Manchester Grammar. He worked hard to get his education back on track, and at the end of the year, he entered Oxford University. There, he led a quiet existence, preferring his own company to anyone else's. He studied hard and was keen to learn, but found the curriculum lacking in creativity and innovation, particularly when he discovered that the study of literature was not encouraged, at least not the modern and romantic kind of literature Tom was interested in. He felt he profited better from the lessons he gave himself than those he received from his professors. On his own initiative, for example, Tom taught himself German simply so he could expand his reading to include books on German philosophy. He didn't want to read them in the translated English versions. As his first year of college came to a close, Tom gathered his courage and crafted a letter to William Wordsworth. He obsessed over it to the point of creating several drafts, carefully writing, crossing out, and rewriting sentences until he felt it deserved to cross his hero's desk. The final result was a fanatical outpouring of admiration and idolatry from a young nobody to a great somebody, accompanied by a hopeful yet extraordinarily brash request 
for William's friendship. There was no reply for two months. Not because William thought him a crazed fan, but because it had been held up in William's publisher's office. When the older poet finally did read it, he wrote back almost the same day to say, quote, I'm already kindly disposed to you. From then on, William and Tom kept up a constant stream of letters. Tom was over the moon. The equivalent of this today would be if a Harry Potter fan became pen pals with J.K. Rowling. In the autumn of 1804, 19-year-old Tom took a trip to London. He had a ritual every evening of drenching his head in cold water, possibly done for health or hygiene reasons. One night, he left it until very late to wash and went to bed with his hair still sopping wet. By morning, he awoke with a severe pain in his head and jaw, which didn't subside for 20 days straight. Unable to put up with it much longer and almost suicidal from sheer agony, Tom took the advice of an acquaintance and went to a pharmacy to purchase laudanum. Back home, he squeezed a couple of drops under his tongue and after an hour, the pain disappeared like magic. Better still, he felt good. Really, really good. He later remembered his first dose in religious terms, imagining the druggist who provided the substance was an angel sent down from heaven. He described the euphoric side effects of opium as an apocalypse of the world within himself and declared, quote, Here was the secret of happiness about which philosophers had disputed for so many ages. Happiness might now be bought for a penny and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Tom's snap decision to remedy himself with laudanum on that rainy Sunday afternoon in London was to have a mark on the rest of his life. Over the next two years, Tom made two trips up to Gracemere in the Lake District of England in order to meet William, and both times he lost his nerve and turned back without meeting the poet. William was disappointed. He was anxious to meet his young admirer, from curiosity if nothing else. In the meantime, an opportunity arose that allowed Tom to meet his second favourite poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Tom met Coleridge through mutual friend Charles Lamb and claimed he recognised Coleridge instantly by his peculiar appearance and dreamy-eyed look. After getting acquainted, Coleridge invited Tom to his home where they spent many evenings discussing politics, philosophy, literature, and of course opium, which Tom at this point was only using occasionally. Tom proved himself useful to Coleridge. He entertained Coleridge's children with games and adventures and gave Coleridge 300 pounds under the polite pretense of a loan. This was no small favor, especially when Tom's own financial situation was modest at best. 300 pounds in the early 19th century equates to almost 25,000 pounds today. Tom was so eager to be of service to Coleridge that he even offered to escort Coleridge's wife and three small children on a trip up to Gracemere to visit William. This meant he'd finally meet his idol, and not as an overexcited fanboy, but as a friend of Coleridge and his family. Still, he couldn't help feeling anxious when he stepped from the carriage and approached the door of Dove Cottage. His hands trembled. It was the moment he'd been anticipating for eight years. Tom described the experience, quote, I heard a step, a voice, and, like a flash of lightning, I saw the figure emerge of a tallish man who held out his hand and saluted me with the most cordial expressions of welcome. After an hour in William's company, Tom's nerves had calmed and he felt entirely at ease. His hero was now his friend. Once Tom had decided his future lay in the Lake District with William and Coleridge, he struggled to see value in his college education. To make matters worse, the professors decided to change the conditions of the final Greek exam, making it easier for students to pass. Tom felt cheated out of a challenge and the opportunity to show off his superior grasp of the language. He grew completely disillusioned with Oxford and saw no point finishing the degree he'd spent the last five years of his life pursuing. So, the night before the exam, Tom skipped town. He never returned and he never graduated. 
Tom moved up to Gracemere and took over the lease at Dove Cottage, the Wordsworth home. The Wordsworths, meanwhile, moved into a larger home nearby to better accommodate their expanding family, as well as their frequent house guest, Sam Coleridge. William, almost 40, took on 23-year-old Tom as a kind of philosophical apprentice, teaching him new ways to read and understand poetry, and sharing with him revolutionary ideas about the essential human relationship to nature. The more vulnerable Coleridge, however, grew wary of Tom, and maintained some distance, perhaps because he suspected Tom to be a literary parasite, or perhaps because he recognised a little too much of himself in the younger opium user. Tom worked hard to ingratiate himself into the Wordsworth circle and prove he was worth keeping around. He accumulated an impressive library of books that he generously lent out. He acted as a fun surrogate uncle to the children. He charmed the hell out of the women, especially William's beloved sister Dorothy, and he provided editorial services to William. He supported himself by making a meagre living publishing essays and editorials in local magazines and newspapers. By 1812, Tom had ramped up his use of opium. He made frequent trips to London where he'd throw back some laudanum and go out on the town. He especially loved seeing the opera while high much like young people today will take ecstasy before attending a concert. With his funds running low, Tom briefly considered a career in law and entered the Middle Temple, the barrister's institution in London, with plans to read for the bar, but dropped out and returned to Gracemere when he received word that tragedy had struck in the Wordsworth household. William's three-year-old daughter Catherine had been plagued with health issues since birth, she had heart problems, suffered convulsions, and had difficulty swallowing, symptoms which seemed to point to polio, a serious disease that affects a person's brain and spinal cord and can lead to life-threatening paralysis. Little Kate, as Tom liked to call her, was Tom's favourite of all the children, and when she died, he fell to pieces. Henry Crabb Robinson, a lawyer and friend of the Wordsworths, noted that Tom actually burst into tears when he first met up with William in the wake of the girl's death. It seemed like Tom was more affected by the loss of Catherine than Catherine's own father. Tom slept outside on the toddler's grave every night for eight weeks and claimed to be haunted by her spirit. Tom's grief was severe and bordered on excessive, to the point where some of his bolder contemporary critics suggests there might have been a pedophilic element to the relationship. Writing to William's sister Dorothy in condolence after Catherine's death, he dwelled with embarrassing fervour on the passionate attachment between himself and the child. He referred to little Kate as his, quote, secret love, and fondly recalled how she'd fall asleep in his arms or give him kisses with her, quote, dear lips. If Tom's intentions with Catherine were ever impure, or if their relationship ever went beyond the realm of platonic companionship, we will never know. Like the reopening of an old wound, the toddler's death dredged up long repressed trauma from when Tom lost his sister Elizabeth at age six. This fresh grief caused stomach pains and his mental state hit an all time low while his consumption of a toxic blend of opium and alcohol hit an all time high. His daily ration rose to 12,000 drops of laudanum, or 40 tablespoons worth, enough to kill a horse. The usual prescribed dosage was only 10 drops. William perceived Tom's extreme response to Catherine's death and subsequent downward spiral as inappropriate, even distasteful. It isn't clear whether or not he knew about Tom losing his sister in early childhood, if he did, you would think he might have extended a bit more sympathy. Instead, William felt Tom had hijacked his family tragedy and adopted it as his own, perhaps out of a morbid interest or as a bid for attention, or perhaps to excuse his rampant drug habit. The cracks in their friendship were beginning to show. If the grief stealing and opium addiction wasn't enough to drive a wedge between Tom and William, the arrival of a new woman on the scene certainly did the trick. Margaret, nicknamed Peggy, was the daughter of a poor but intelligent local farmer named John Simpson, 
whom Tom befriended after his relationship with William cooled off. Tom visited John Simpson at his home frequently, in a place called Nab Cottage that still exists today. Tom found the sturdy, well-read farmer interesting, and his attractive younger daughter even more so. Peggy would serve the tea, then stay to listen to the men's conversation. She was just as enamoured with Tom as he was with her. He was gentlemanly and sophisticated, and eccentric in a good way and so unlike the vulgar, grubby labourers she was used to meeting. Tom was an extremely short man, but he wasn't terrible to look at. In fact, he looked like Brian Cranston during his Malcolm in the Middle days, not Breaking Bad. The Wordsworths discouraged the ill-suited coupling. As much as they liked to pretend they didn't care about class distinctions, they felt Peggy was Tom's inferior in terms of social standing and education. Dorothy, especially, was disappointed in Tom's taste in women and thought Peggy would be his reckoning. She called Peggy a, quote, stupid, heavy girl who was better suited to be Tom's servant than his sweetheart. In 1816, three years into their affair, Peggy gave birth to her and Tom's son out of wedlock. They named him William. The illegitimate birth was a scandal in the small Lake District community and in an attempt to prevent further disgrace, Tom and Peggy rushed to the altar to marry. He was 31 and she was at least 10 years younger. The marriage may have snuffed out the scandal, but it didn't stop the Wordsworths from severing ties and it didn't stop Tom reaching for the laudanum bottle. In fact, with Peggy in the picture, Tom now had a live-in carer ready to nurse him back to sobriety whenever he took his indulgence too far. In the winter of 1817, Tom went on a bender, which kept him almost catatonic and bedridden for months. He suffered lucid opium nightmares when asleep and horrifying hallucinations when awake and towed the line of complete insanity. Peggy was there to keep her besotted husband from tipping over into the abyss. She rescued him from the pains of opium and nursed him back to health while at the same time raising young William and their now newborn daughter, Margaret. When Tom got back to his feet, he rewarded his uncomplaining wife with a promise. He was going to get steady work and provide for his family. Tom made good on his promise. For 18 months at least, the 33-year-old was appointed editor of a local Tory newspaper called the Westmoreland Gazette that is still circulated today. Each week, he regaled readers with a characteristic mishmash of articles on politics, German philosophy, poetry, crime, and executions. Topics which were perhaps a little too abstract and gruesome for the farmers and housewives who made up the readership. His choice in coverage, coupled with his still lingering drug habit and irregular attendance to the office, was detrimental to the paper. In November 1821, he was politely dismissed. Tom took his editorial experience from his work at the paper to London and landed a writing role at the London magazine. It was here that he published in two instalments the work he is still known for today, a sinuous, trippy mixture of psychological profiling and chemical memoir, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. It was an immediate sensation and Tom became an overnight celebrity. Readers couldn't get enough. No one before had written, in English, so frankly about opium addiction. Confessions was reprinted and released in book form the following year. Finally, aged 37, Tom could call himself an author. Not everyone was happy for him. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was appalled to find out that in one particular passage of the novel, Tom had not so subtly insinuated that Coleridge was a far bigger dope fiend than he. The two authors started publicly scrapping and squabbling over the topic of opium, and who took how much and why. Coleridge went on the record to say he only ever took opium for medical reasons, and Tom went on the record to call bullshit. There were also the familiar disputes in the press about whether Tom was cautioning or corrupting the young. The fact is, Tom never outright denounced or celebrated opium and took a neutral stance instead, which left him open to accusations that his controversial essay glamorised the effects of the drug 
and enticed readers to try it. In any case, by the close of the book, Tom declared he had kicked the drug habit. This was a lie. Through tremendous effort, Tom had nearly managed to cut back on his usage and keep his addiction under control, levelling out to six grains of opium, or about 200 drops of laudanum a day. Confessions canonised Tom as the opium eater, and for the remainder of his career, he both capitalised upon and shrank away from the notoriety of this identity. He went on to contribute a stream of brilliant articles to several other prominent magazines, including the Edinburgh-based Blackwood magazine, which led to his relocation to the Scottish capital in 1828. It was in Blackwood that he published his famously provocative essay titled On Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts. The essay is a fictional, blackly funny account of an address made to a gentleman's club concerning the aesthetic appreciation of murder. Tom's success with confessions and murder as a fine art gave him a temporary respite from debt, but his drug habit and spending habits meant the creditors were always hot on his heels. It didn't help that his family had expanded to a total of eight children. There were many mouths to feed. Over and over, Tom was sued for debt, and at one point, briefly imprisoned. His mountain of debt attained such a fantastical level that he and his family were forced into hiding at a famous debtor's sanctuary at Holyrood Road, a safe zone wherein debtors could live free from the threat of arrest. But there was no sanctuary from death. The 1830s was a dark decade for the De Quincey household. In 1832, Tom's three-year-old son Julius died in his mother's arms. Two years later, Tom's firstborn and favourite, William, the boy he called, quote, the crown and glory of my life, died at age 18 from acute leukaemia. In 1837, Peggy died from typhus, an infectious disease caused by the bacteria transmitted to humans through lice, fleas or mites. When, as a teenager, she agreed to marry this short, strange man of genius, she probably didn't realise she was committing herself to 21 erratic years living on the poverty line, running from creditors, raising eight children, nursing her doped husband, grieving the premature loss of two children, and fighting her own depression. After Peggy's death, Tom understandably fell back into the drug habit he'd kept under control for years. There can hardly have been a more helpless widower than that of Tom, 52 years old, a broken man, with six surviving children. His daughter, Margaret, only in her teens but the eldest now that William had died, took charge of the family. She rented a cottage about seven miles or 12 kilometres outside of Edinburgh, near the historic stone village of Las Wade, where she and her siblings could live in peace. Tom continued to carry out journalistic work sporadically, whenever he needed the money, which was often. In the last decades of his life, his drug habit cost him about 150 pounds a year. That's almost 20,000 US dollars today. He split his time between the Lasswade cottage with his children and a second lodging back in the city of Edinburgh, which he kept purely as a place to store his massive collection of expensive books. You could say, Hoarding books was as much as an addiction for him as opium. That said, Tom's books weren't just on the shelf for decoration. He gave Coleridge a run for his money in the race for the title of most well-read man of his time. As Tom grew older, he grew increasingly solitary and eccentric. But that doesn't mean his celebrity faded. In fact, the opposite happened. He continued to be considered one of Great Britain's most famous and notorious literary figures. And then, by the late 1840s, his fan base had spread across the Atlantic and through the United States. The renewed interest encouraged him to continue to write and assemble and revise his past works for new collections. In 1848, while traveling through Edinburgh, the American poet philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson went out of his way to meet the legendary Thomas de Quincey, and then wrote an excited letter home bragging about it to his family. In 1859, 
Thomas de Quincey's chaotic time on earth came to a quiet close. He died at age 74, an impressive number when you consider what he'd put his body through. For all the toll it took on his life, addiction somehow didn't shorten it. Tom was buried next to his wife in St Cuthbert's Churchyard in Edinburgh. When fellow author Charles Baudelaire heard of his passing, he declared that England had lost one of its most original minds. Over 100 years later, William S. Burroughs famously announced that Thomas de Quincey wrote, quote, The first and still the best book about drug addiction. And he went on to state that, quote, No other author since has given such a completely analytical description of what it is like to be a junkie, from the first use to the effects of withdrawal. The following excerpt is taken from Confessions of an English Opium Eater. The passage describes, in vivid detail, Thomas's first high. Arrived at my lodgings, it may be supposed that I lost not a moment in taking the quantity prescribed. I was necessarily ignorant of the whole art and mystery of opium taking, and what I took I took under every disadvantage. But I took it, and in an hour, oh heavens, what a revulsion! What an upheaving from its lowest depths of inner spirit. What an apocalypse of the world within me. That my pains had vanished was now a trifle in my eyes. This negative effect was swallowed up in the immensity of those positive effects which had opened before me. In the abyss of divine enjoyment thus suddenly revealed. Here was a panacea for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness about which philosophers had disputed for so many ages, at once discovered. Happiness might now be bought for a penny and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Portable ecstasies might be had corked up in a pint bottle, and peace of mind could be sent down in gallons by the mail coach. But if I talk in this way, the reader will think I am laughing, and I can assure him that nobody will laugh long who deals much with opium. Thanks for listening to Hollyword. This episode was written and narrated by me, Key Whiskey. Special thanks to my guest, Jared Doyle, for editing the episode and voicing Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Thomas De Quincey, and any other voices featured throughout. Please visit our website, hollywoodpodcast.com, to find show notes, including a list of sources used and more information. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, well, you're already doing it by listening. But if you're feeling extra generous, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. I know you could be listening to a million other podcasts right now, and the fact you're listening to me means more to me than I could ever adequately express. Join me next time for another dive into the lives of history's greatest storytellers. Good night. <laughs>